0: This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 67, March the 23rd, 1984. Before we go into some of the material I have uh, prepared for this, I'd like to uh, share with you something I just got in the mail about an hour ago from one of you, John Nelson in Bagwell, Texas. He writes in part, and I quote, I wanted to share something with you I heard on the radio here last week. Some company in Dallas is sending IRS insurance. If your tax return is prepared by a lawyer or a CPA, you can buy insurance for additional tax arising out of disallowed deductions at an audit. File it and forget it is the ad's closing quip. Perhaps this is being done in other parts of the country, but it is new to me. Moreover, I could not help being amazed at what all this implies. We buy insurance to protect ourselves against the perils of life, sickness, accident, theft, and the like. What has it come to when we must insure ourselves against our own government? End of quote. Well, John, that is a tremendous point and a very important one. I've said more than once that I... Think we need to be more afraid of the federal government than of the Soviet Union, because the federal government is a constant threat to all of us and treats us as its continual enemy. Then another letter that came this morning from Owen Forey in South Africa. And he writes in part, and I quote. The Ankatomi Accord to be signed by Christian Prime Minister P. W. Botha of the Republic of South Africa and Socialist President of Mozambique on Friday, the 16th of March, is seemingly a great step forward in the cause for peace in this subcontinent. But I am reminded of what you have written regarding Dante's view of the state and the one and the many, namely, The basic and first requisite for the realization of the goal of human civilization is for Dante not faith but peace. Meanwhile, many farmers are leaving the keys to their properties with local magistrates while they drift to the cities in search of employment. The great drought here in Africa threatens to turn much of South Africa into a dust bowl. On the other hand, the summer cyclones have brought devastating floods which have wiped out some uh, sugar plantations to such an extent that there are those who claim it is futile to even considering establishing new plantations. Then there are those who insist on their scientific explanations of these events. Pray for us, as we do for you, that in wrath, God will remember mercy, unquote. Well, this is the kind of crisis that is taking place all over the world, and I think we can expect some major crises here in this country in the way of natural phenomena as God's judgment increases. You all probably read about the decision in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a divorced mother who filed 1.3 million lawsuit against the Collinsville Church of Christ and three of its elders for publicly denouncing her for the sin of fornication was awarded 390,000 by a jury last Thursday. Now, this woman joined the Church knowing full well what the rules of its discipline were. She did not deny that she had been guilty of fornication, but she still felt it was none of the Church's business, and the jury agreed. All these things indicate that we are in a time of crisis and of judgment. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the um, bill to alter the Social Security laws and give relief to the churches, which under the new law are required to pay Social Security, is sitting in committee. The men who are for it get the credit with Christians of being for it, and they are doing nothing to get it out of committee. They prefer to let it die there while they get credit for being for it. I'd like to read something from the Plymouth Rock Foundation's fact sheet on Social Security, because whatever you think about Social Security, you'd better realize it is economically all but finished. It's a disaster economically. I quote, Congress passed Social Security Act August 14, 1935. Benefits were not intended as full-scale retirement program, only a partial replacement of wages lost due to retirement. In 1937, 1% of workers' first 3,000 earnings went to federal old age insurance, $30 a year matched by a tax on employer. Since 1937, Congress has expanded the program 13 times. At start, Social Security paid only retirement benefits. Now twenty-one general types of benefits provided by old age survivors and disability insurance. This year, Federal Insurance Contributions Act. Uh, the tax on both employee and employer is seven percent on wages up to thirty seven thousand five hundred nine point three five percent for self-employed. Maximum annual employee employer tax is It will increase to 15.3% of wages up to $57,000 by 1900. 51% of all Americans pay more uh, uh, FICA taxes than federal income taxes. A lot more data, but I will uh, skip over. Uh, Yet with increase in taxes and reforms of Social Security amendments of 1983, OASDI, Old Age Survivors and Disability Insurance, is still a fiscal nightmare. The system's unfunded liabilities to cover those now under the program is $5.6 trillion dollars about five times greater than the rest of the federal debt. The system's future solvency is even more unsettled. When the baby boomers of the 40s and 50s reach retirement age, workers then will be even more heavily taxed to fund the system. Economist Michael Boskin warns, unless, uh, unless honest solutions are found and committed, uh, commitments honored, The U.S. faces the greatest tax revolt and age warfare in its history. What caused the crisis in the Social Security program? Politics, mostly. Congress bought votes with liberalized benefits. It depleted reserves. In the face of increased longevity of American workers, politicians okayed earlier retirement, eased requirements for disability benefits, added hospital insurance, special student benefits, etc. Also, the ratio of workers to recipients has declined drastically. In 1940, 16 workers funded each Social Security recipient. In 1984, it's 3 to 1, with a projected decline to 2 to 1 by the year 2000. By then, at present trends, OASDI expenditures will take 10% of the gross national product, 43% of the federal budget, and 30-plus percent of, a- of the average worker's wages. Is it a good deal? Not really. Not as an investment. Thus, participation is mandatory rather than voluntary. Workers entering the system in 1980, earning average wage all his life and retiring at 65 would receive benefits of about 15,000 a year for himself and his spouse if deposits equal to the taxes were put into a private fund at 6% he could retire at 65 on $45,000 a year or could draw $28,000 a year and bequeath an estate worth 500,000 to his heirs OASDI is virtually a full-scale tax-funded welfare program. Ninety-seven percent of all Americans over 65 depend on it for a large part of their income, and so on and on. Now, here we have a vast boondoggle. It's destroying the country economically. The amount of taxes, as Fact Sheet goes on to say, are so great that they already are taking half a million jobs off the market because of what it costs the employers. This is an excellent account, and I've just barely skimmed the surface of the four pages and left out a great deal. If you want a copy of this, send a self-addressed and stamped envelope, to Plymouth Rock Foundation, P.O. Box 425, Marlborough, M.A.R.L.B.O.R.O.U.G.H, New Hampshire, 03455, and send a dollar for ten copies, twenty-five copies, two dollars, fifty copies, three fifty, and a hundred for six dollars. I think this is well worth getting because these facts are important for us to know because we face destruction because of Social Security. Now, on something related, taxes, I'd like to read a quotation from Professor Edwin R.A. Seligman, written in 1895. One of the few good things of past generations, or present for that matter. On the property tax was a book by Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N. I quote, Practically, the general property tax as actually administered is beyond all doubt one of the worst taxes known in the civilized world. Because of its attempt to tax intangible as well as tangible things, it sins against the cardinal rule of uniformity, of equality, and of universality in taxation. It is so inequitable that its retention can be explained only through ignorance or inertia. It is the cause of such crying injustice that its alteration or abolition must become the battle cry of every statesman and reformer. That was 1895, almost 90 years ago that Seligman said the property tax had to be abolished. The most we've done with it is to reform it a bit, as in California with Prop 13. Now to something else. One of the books I dealt with some time ago on these easy chairs that uh, some of you objected to, (laughs) and I still hear about it. Well, I'm going to deal with the general subject uh, tomorrow morning in our Sunday morning Bible studies on the theology of work. I won't repeat what I have there to say, but the book was Megatrends by John Nasebitt. And uh, some people have written, well, don't you know who Nasebitt is and uh, how can you plug a book by a man who's ne- not on our side? Well, my feeling is I don't care what side a man is on if he writes something that is useful and that is well worth reading. Now, as against Alvin Toffler's future shock, Mega megatrends has some very important things to say. Futurology has become a very important aspect of our life today, and more and more scholars are involved in it. But, too many of these scholars approach the subject from the perspective of their intellectual presuppositions. That is, they sit down and imagine what developments are going to take place. Well, some years ago I read some predictions in 1900 about the twentieth century. They were very interesting. Most of them were wrong. because. The technology, the inventions, and so on that seem necessary and inevitable to one generation become totally irrelevant ten years later because as things develop, the needs change, so civilization takes another direction. For example, to cite one thing that... uh, we had the technology for years before it became marketed was television, but no one was interested in television. As a result, it wasn't until we had a a different cultural climate after World War II that television was marketed and became enormously successful. So it is that a great many things lie latent or disappear because people are not interested in them. The significance of megatrends is that it did not look at the future in terms of what intellectuals sitting down, analyzing the situation, said they thought would come. It did it in terms of existing trends today. As a result, the book is far more conservative than Nesbitt and his associates. He looked at actual trends. And this is what we must do, and this is why the book is important. As we analyze the future, we have to look at the actual trends that are developing and slowly but surely substantially developing, and we can understand the future. This is much better than the kind of wishful thinking that so often prevails on our side. Now, megatrends gives us ten new directions that indicate some very real hope concerning our future in spite of the economic crises that are immediately ahead of us. Looking at the situation religiously, we can see where the trends are and that's important. So I think if we're ready to learn, we can learn a great deal from books like Megatrends. Then to go on to something else, one of the books published of late was Managers of Virtue, Public School Leadership in America, 1820-1980. to 1980. The authors are David Tyack, T Y A C K, and Elizabeth Hansott, Hansot, H A N S O T. Published in New York by Basic Books, the publication date was 1982, and the price 17.95. I don't know whether it's still in print. The book is very, very liberal, but it's also quite revealing because, among other things. The religious roots of the public school movement are very apparent here. Some of you who read my book, Messianic Character of American Education, still in print after 21 years, will recall that I pointed out that Horace Mann said that the church of the future was to be the public schools well, the authors very approvingly quote what one of the top progressive educators, George Counts himself, had to say that the leaders in public education were men who were liberals in religion. And this one man, George Counts, said the major inspiration, indeed the one true religion behind the public schools was the Methodist Church and its social gospel. That's interesting coming from George Counts. Moreover, it is interesting that the authors raise the question, uh, or rather make a flat-out statement finally, and I quote, the public school system is probably the closest Americans have come towards creating an established church, unquote. Well, when they say it, it's quite widely accepted. But when I say it on the stand, <laughs> it is not well received. Now to go to another book, a very important one, by Stanton E. Samenow, S-A-M-E-N-O-W a Times book, New York Times Book Company, New York, uh, published in uh, 1984, 1550. Very important book. Dr. Samenow, together with... Uh, The late uh, Dr. Jockelson, Y-O-C-H-E-L-S-O-N, has done some excellent writing in the past on the uh, criminal personality. This one, Inside the Criminal Mind, is a gem because without having any uh, religious statements in it, it substantiates a biblical perspective because... His thesis is that criminals choose to commit crimes, and crime resides within the person and is caused by the way he thinks, not by his environment. So he says criminals think differently from responsible people. So it isn't the world around the man that is guilty, not his parents or his environment. It's the offender So it is the offender who must be changed. Now, that's the weakest point of the book. And there he has nothing good to say because he wants to do it psychologically. But in the process, he gives us a superb analysis which simply tells us what we believe from a biblical perspective, that man is a sinner, that uh, he wants to be his own god. Therefore, the criminal is somebody who wants his own way and is determined to get it. Moreover, he makes it clear that the idea that the criminal is a deprived person or that he is usually subnormal in intelligence is nonsense. Most of them are of average or superior intelligence. They simply want their own will. They regard other people as pawns to be used. They view life in terms of something that we have in politics, namely, as a sphere of entitlements. He writes, the criminal believes that he is entitled to whatever he desires and he will pursue it ruthlessly. Moreover, he says that they will use people, they will use sex, they will use psychologists, everyone, because their attitude is the world is there to be used. Moreover, he calls attention to the Phariseeism of criminals. They have every kind of justification for themselves. They're very modern, very up on things. For example, I quote, this is on page 164, The criminal thinks so highly of himself because he has within him a deep reservoir of genuine sentiment, amazingly a violent streak thug, became became impassioned about sparing the life of a bug, ordering his wife not to squash it. A criminal who indulged in fantasies of knife-point rape and homicide said to his wife when she proposed that they go to a tree farm where they'd be allowed to chop down their own Christmas tree, no, I will not destroy living matter, even while en route to a crime a criminal may perform a good deed. One man dropped by a bar treating a down-and-out alcoholic to a meal and feeling pretty good about himself robbed a bank. And he goes on to say that uh, they will actually rape a woman and then spend 45 minutes talking to her about her welfare, or how she needs to have some kind of religion. In other words, it's good for everybody else. Moreover, their self-image, he says, is surprising to those who think of criminals as victims of society. Salmono writes... The criminal doesn't think he's a failure except when he gets caught for a crime. If he failed at school, work, and elsewhere, it is because of choices that he made. It is not his self-esteem that needs building. He is not a shy, neurotic individual who feels he can't do anything right. Rather, he thinks of himself as an exceptional person who is superior to others, unquote. That's why the laws are not binding on him. That's why he can feel that religion or uh, psychotherapy or any such thing is good for someone else, but not for himself. He does not need it. So what Saminoff has done is to give us a vivid picture of the criminal mentality inside the criminal mind, and it is anything but what our liberals believe it to be. I wish this book were circulating widely, but I doubt that it will. None of the books by these two men have has had uh, a wide circulation. They certainly deserve it, however, because what Yokelson did and what Samonov is continuing to do is to call attention to the fact that the pleas of insanity are being used by these people. Criminals do know right from wrong. They simply feel they are exceptions to all laws because they are superior people. They are not the hapless victims of oppressive social conditions. They utilize the jargon of the day to defend themselves. There is uh, a use of the idea of temporary insanity. Nor are they rejected by society. They reject society. And so on and so on. A great many of the myths of our day are very, very bluntly and tellingly exploded by Salmonov. Now to a book of a totally different sort. This is very interesting reading. It's by Natalie Zeman Davis, an historian at Princeton University. And the uh, title is The Return of Martin Guare, G U E R R E. published by the Harvard University Press, published in 1983. Now, (laughs) this is a story that uh, is of a type that has often appeared in fiction, usually on the basis of the Martin Guerre story. It has also been made into an opera and a play, and I believe a movie, Well, here is the true story behind those fictional versions. In the 1540s, in Languedoc, France, a rich peasant left his wife, children, and property and disappeared for years. I think it was twelve or more years. And then he comes back, or so everyone thinks, but after three or four years of very agreeable marriage, he is brought to trial as an imposter. What happened was that Martin Guare was uh, of a well-to-do peasant family, quite well-to-do. He married in his teens a very lovely girl, one who even 20 years later, was spoken of constantly as a great beauty. He had been an outstanding young man in the community, the leader of other youth. He also distinguished himself as a swordsman and uh, was thus clearly a young man who, both because of the family's prosperity, because of his physical prowess and his skills, was the leader. Also, he got the local beauty. But then uh, problems ensued. He could not consummate the marriage. And uh, after three years, the law allowed for disannulment in or annulment of marriages in such cases. But the bride remained faithful to her husband and refused to sue for annulment. Finally, the husband was able to perform within limits, and a child was born. All the same, he was still uh, very self-conscious in the community. After all, he'd been a leader, he had been the dominant person among his peers, and suddenly he had, with his marriage, turned into a joke. So even after the child was born, he felt somewhat hurt and uh, ill at ease in the community. So he disappeared. What happened was that he went to Spain. He allied himself with a nobleman. He took part in a number of military campaigns and distinguished himself. When he became wounded and incapacitated for further action because of the distinction with which he had fought, He was given, technically, the status of a nobleman by being allowed to become a pensioner in a very important association or club. Well, meanwhile, in a nearby community, a day's journey away, one young man, or more than a day's journey away, some distance away, one young man heard repeatedly the stories of Martin Guerre. He heard them because, as uh, various travelers came through, they were struck by his resemblance to Martin Guerre. There was a slight difference in height, and as it developed, a slight difference in shoe size. But there was a marked resemblance. So after two or three visitors came through and uh, called out to him, Martin, good to see you, and so on, he became curious, and uh, each time he asked a great many questions, sat down and chatted with these people. Now, this man who resembled Martin Guerre had been a thorough rascal, in and out of trouble, and a disgrace to an otherwise good family. Well, finally, he had accumulated so much information, including data about who was present at the wedding, the names of all the relatives, what they looked like, that he decided he would be Martin Guerre, And he returned to a place within a day's journey of the village. And there he uh, identified himself as Martin Guerre the news spread rapidly to Martin Guare's home community. And Martin Guare's sisters came there and happily identified him. And uh, so in due time he went home. And there fathered, I believe, three children, took over and became a very responsible husband from being a thorough scoundrel he became a very responsible man, and apparently very much in love with Martin Guerra's wife. The uh, estate he began to develop very ably and successfully. But then he got into a quarrel with Martin Guerra's uncle, who had earlier welcomed him back and had been pleased with him. It was a quarrel over property and the uncle was in the wrong. But by pressing the point and challenging his authority as the senior member of the family, he was placing himself in the wrong in challenging the uncle. So the uncle became furious and said, How do I know you are really Martin Guerre?" Well, at this point the shoemaker said, Well, his shoe size is different. And someone observed in the family, he's not quite as tall as he used to be. And as a result, he was taken to court. And uh, the wife was torn betwixt and between. The man insisted he was Martin Guerre. The wife apparently had her doubts and filed the complaint and then changed her mind and testified for him because whatever he was, he was a better man than what she had had, and as she said, after twelve years, it's hard to say. Well, the man was convicted, and there was an appeal, and a rehearing in the court of appeals, and at this point, the real Martin Guerre walked in, minus a leg, which he had lost and denounced the pretender and was very heartless in denouncing his wife because he said any wife would know the difference the real martin guerrero therefore took over and the pretended martin guerrero was executed only prior to execution did he at last admit his identity and beg forgiveness and make clear his great love for the wife. How the uh, couple, Martin Guerr and his wife, lived thereafter is hard to say. She had one child by him and then died prematurely, and he remarried. Very interesting story, and in the process there are some interesting sidelights that uh, manifest biblical law at work in early modern France. Good reading, in other words, nothing earth-shattering, but an interesting story. Now on a totally different level, I'm going to uh, (laughs) indulge in one of my pet peeves, weathermen. I regard weather reports as one of the prize examples of humanistic religion in action. I've talked about this before in my uh, radio series when I was still doing it. But in the past decade, for example, there was serious drought in various parts of the country. This winter, there have been serious freezes destroying crops in various parts of the country. And what do the weathermen talk about? Beautiful day tomorrow. Or if there's going to be a storm in our area, the weathermen will say it'll be great skiing weather because there'll be some fresh snow on the pack. All they think about is people enjoying the weather, But in the past ten years, the devastation that has been wrought by bad weather is staggering. I talked two days ago with a man who telephoned. He is going to lose a sizable farm in the Midwest beginning in 1980. Bad weather has wiped out his crop each year. Think of the cabbage growers who had everything wiped out in Florida, the citrus growers whose trees now are brown, and so on. I was in a community of 40,000 in the Plains states when most farmers had lost their wheat the previous year and there was no snow on the ground in midwinter and the weatherman got on the radio each to our television each time and talked about another beautiful sunshiny day tomorrow that's humanism in action well they're going to know that the weather can be deadly because i'm going to predict that we're going to see some of the most dramatic natural disasters and weather conditions in the next year or two than we have yet seen. And the weather is not going to be for fun and games alone. But you had better be concerned about the weather because your food supply depends upon it. Well, now on to something else. Another interesting book just published, by Regnery Gateway in Chicago, 1983, by Rail R-A-E-L, Gene Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, and Eric, E-R-I-C-H, Isaac, The Coercive Utopians, the subtitle, Social Deception by America's Power Players, 1895 is the price. It's not a book that has any new thesis, but it documents a great deal of what's going on today how our liberals are coercive utopians. And liberal today no longer means what it used to mean. It means somebody who believes in government programs is the answer for everything. What they are doing and how they are misrepresenting things and are working to coerce us into a totally statist Order. People like Barry Commoner, Amory Lovins, Jeremy Rifkin, Ernest Callender, and of course Paul Ehrlich, a guru of the zero population growth movement, Mother Jones Magazine, Nader, and many, many more are here listed and what they have to say described and what the authors call attention to is that there is on the part of these people a desire for scarcity he said they say and I quote indeed the utopians desire scarcity for scarcity is the key to their future ability to establish control allocating resources according to their concept of what is good for the public, That, to me, is the key sentence in the book. When you create scarcity, you create the opportunity for the federal government to step in and to allocate resources. Well, through the controls on agriculture, through the controls on business, they are moving towards creating scarcity. In the Soviet Union, you have planned scarcity. In Red China, you have planned scarcity. In every socialist country in the world, you have planned scarcity. And what we are getting here is planning for scarcity. And the idea of unleashing business or agriculture to be more productive is ridiculous for these people. And, of course, he calls attention, or the authors call attention, to the uh, perversion of the news. For example, they speak of the failure of CBS in its two-part drama, Guyana Tragedy, the story of Jim Jones, to say a word concerning Jones as a Communist. I quote, Jones had broken with the U.S. Communist Party, according to his own statement, because it had turned against Stalin, and I loved Stalin. Nonetheless, his feelings toward the party had clearly mellowed, for his will provided that in the absence of immediate surviving family, his estate should go to the U.S. Communist Party. Jones had also ordered that $7 million belonging to the People's Temple be transferred to the Soviet Union. When the script's author, Ernest Tidyman, was asked about the omission, he said he did not believe Jones was a communist. Asked what Jones' political views were, Tidyman replied, none particularly. He was very liberal, very progressive, very community conscious. Presumably for Tidyman giving the facts about Jones' communism would interfere with the image he wanted to convey of Jones as an idealistic community builder gone astray. So this book is very interesting. Saw the names of some of my teachers and classmates in it, including a roommate. And they deserve to be there because of what they have helped do to this country. Now to a book which is an older one by Lynn T. White, Jr., Medieval Religion and Technology, collected essays, published by the University of California Press in 1978 and, I believe, out of print. At any rate, the reason why I'm reading this is because of something... He has to say about life in the Middle Ages for the common people. Now, when R.E. Mac- uh, McMaster was here recently, he told me there is a book that calls attention to the high standard of living among the peasants in the Middle Ages. And I'm hoping he will locate that reference and uh, I can read that work. However, uh, There is some evidence apart from that uh, that uh, Linty White supplies. I'd like to uh, call attention to the data on pages 133 following, a chapter on the life of the silent majority, peasant life. And he cites from a story of a couple of uh, wandering knights who come to this village. And he says, this tale has the peasant not at all in mind. It's dealing with the behavior of these young knights. And therefore, in the process, we get an honest picture of the peasants that uh, is given to us unconsciously because it was not the author's purpose to tell us about peasant life. His description of German peasant life in the middle of the 11th century is the more valuable because he is simply telling a picaresque story in a context familiar to his audience. Here we view a lively, self-confident, prosperous agrarian society. The village is of considerable size. The houses are built around courts which include stables, barns, storehouses, and latrines. There are many cattle, horses, sheep, Goats, hogs, chickens, geese, and bees, not to mention pet dogs and cats in a large establishment has several hired servants. There is plenty of food including meat, and for special occasions one drinks wine or mead. Surplus production is sold for money, and there is some participation in commerce. Spices are twice mentioned. And the hussy has a fur robe. At the house where Ruodlieb stays, a cup magnificently carved of walnut wood and ornamented with gold is brought out in his honor. Our author, however, is not romanticizing the peasant. The older men in particular are unkempt, dirty, and rough in their manners. What are we to think of the fact that this 11th century picture of northern peasant life is considerably happier than those found in such well-known poems as Meir Helmbrach 200 years later and Piers Plowman in the 14th century. The key to the difference is the fact that these works, latter works, have a moralizing intent. They are denunciations of abuses which undoubtedly existed. But this circumstance should warn us not to consider their descriptions normative. Rodlieb may be trusted as more objective because it has as little purpose of arousing compassion for the peasant as of making us envious of him. The author is merely telling us a good story in the setting of the society which he knows. So he goes on to say that uh, life then was a lot better than we imagine. And I should like to add that we must not read the modern era into the past. For example, after the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the role of the peasant was a very ugly one. He was progressively living in worse and worse circumstances. Moreover, the peasant was increasingly more and more hopeless as the Christian complex of culture disappeared. As a result, peasant life was degraded and dirty. Bathing, which was commonplace in the Middle Ages, bathhouses in cities and villages, these disappeared. We must not forget that the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment set culture back dramatically. Only within the last century have we been able to see the ordinary man live anywhere near as well. So we must disabuse ourselves of so much of the mythology that prevails. Now to another book. This one is out of print. It was published in 1979 by W. W. Norton in New York. Alec Thackeray, You'll Need a Guardian Angel, is the title. It's a book about a young Pole. A law student was drafted into the service as a lieutenant when war broke out in 1939. When Hitler and Stalin divided Poland between themselves, the army of which he was a part was taken over by the Soviet Union. The men wound up in slave labor camps. He gives us a horrifying account of life within the Soviet Union and in slave labor camps as so many others have done. But The interesting thing is that this young man escaped from that slave labor camp, something that rarely happens. He was up in the Arctic Circle in the huge forest areas there. He made his way deep into the woods, and there found an elderly couple who had been in slave labor camps. When released, were confined to Siberia and had gone deep into the jungle, to or forest, rather, to build a life for themselves there, a subsistence life. They did not want any part of the rest of the world. They were devout, godly people. He was trying to make his way back to Poland, clear across Siberia and Russia. This elderly couple passed him on in time to another couple living also deep in the woods, but some distance in the direction he wanted to go, and then a third couple with whom he spent the winter because the snows were too deep. He finally got as far as the vicinity of Moscow when he was Caught, and sent back this time to a coal mine near the Chinese border. When there was a cave-in in the mine, he hid, and it was assumed that he was one of those under tons of rock dead. So at night he crept out of the mine and made his way into China and from there to freedom. However, the interesting thing to me was his experience in these isolated homes. A few years back, a colony of old believers were found deep in the woods. A Soviet plane flying overhead spotted a colony, reported it. They were all arrested and sent to slave labor camp. Isolated individuals, of course, or families like these that he stayed with do exist in those places, all of them praying for the end of the Soviet regime. Well, our time is virtually over. A number of things I wanted to share with you. Let me just call attention to this. Uh, Clipping from Monday, January 9, 1984, the Seattle Times, page 7, that half of 750 job applicants in Vancouver flunked a drug test. Half of them. This tells you what's happening in our culture. These are not uh, dropouts. These were job applicants at the Vancouver Alcoa plant. And the personnel director said, we were amazed. We had no idea it would be that high. So uh, they found that uh, the drug test was valid. They had done it for security purposes in terms of work within the plant. It tells us something about our society and why people who believe there will be easy answers without a dramatic change in the people are very, very misguided. The people must change. No more than we can change the criminal by changing his environment are we going to change the people of the United States by working from outside. We do need, of course, to work, to control crime, to change things politically, but those changes will be futile unless we do our work religiously, as Christians. Only regenerate men, finally, can create a godly society. This is our concern. We want change in every area, beginning with the heart of man. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll be back in two weeks. God bless you, and goodbye for now.